Hello, my Rebels. What a very unusual conversation with an unusual person. I met Noor Bin Laden. That name might, might ring a bell. She's the niece of a very famous and bad person, but she is a woman of valor, and it was a pleasure to get to know her and to talk to her about freedom in this unfree town of Davos. You will be surprised and delighted and impressed with her. I certainly was. That's ahead. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. I want you to see her, and I want you to see the streets of Davos as we walk through. And that's what our Rebel News Plus is. It's a video version of this show. It's eight bucks a month, which is half the price of Netflix. I think we're just as interesting. You know, we need the dough because we don't get any money from Justin Trudeau. We just rely on you. All right, here's today's podcast. Censorious bug. Ezra Levant here for Rebel News. I'm walking in Davos, Switzerland, and we're here for the World Economic Forum. Most of the people who have come to the World Economic Forum are not from Switzerland themselves. It's a special treat to get away to the Swiss Alps in this picturesque town, which in some ways reminds me of Banff, but of course it's been taken over by the largest corporations and governments and oligarchs around. But you do find the occasional Swiss person here too. I mean, why not? You're in Switzerland. And I met someone who I've only been following online. I met her in person and she's so interesting. I thought, I'm going to share this experience with you, the viewers, just out of interest and what a wonderful world we live in. Joining me today in our little walk, the stroll down the street is Noor Bin Laden. What a pleasure to meet you. The pleasure is all mine. I've been following your work for a while, and so I was very excited to meet you too here in the streets of Davos. Well, I'm flattered, and you're based in Geneva, right? Which is a beautiful city. I've never been there by myself, but it's um, it's it's a it's an international city. It's a United Nations headquarters. The Human Rights Council is there. Tell me a little bit about Geneva. What do you do there? What's it, like? I want to get into who you are because you have a last name that probably a lot of viewers are saying Bin Laden. I know who the Bin Ladens are. Tell me a little bit about yourself, and then I'll ask a little bit more about your history. Sure. First of all, I'll tell you, Switzerland is a really beautiful country with many beautiful spots. But as I like to say, it's a beautiful place where all of the globalists' dirty work gets done. Right. Well, including banking. That's a tradition that there's some bad guys in this beautiful place. Yeah, I mean, the history of this country, of my country, you know, from my mom's side, uh, for the viewers who aren't aware, but my mom is Swiss. Um, the history of this country is fascinating, especially in light of the globalists and their agenda and how they've set up uh, the whole infrastructure over a hundred plus years. Even we can go back to the early 1800s when you look at, uh, at uh, the different institutions and organizations they've set up to reach the point where we are today here in 2023 in Davos, um, where we are at the latest stages of the implementation of the New World Order or the so-called Great Reset as they've rebranded it in light of the so-called pandemic, COVID pandemic. Well, that's a great point because we like to think that this is a recent phenomenon. But when you think about it, um, President Wilson and his League of Nations, that was a 
protean form of globalism, uh, a utopian um, managed world. It didn't work, but it set the groundwork for so many international globalist institutions. Tell me a little bit about the history of globalism in Switzerland. I, I mean, you mentioned a little bit, but it sounds like you've been tracing things and following things a bit. Well, you're absolutely right. The League of Nations was the first attempt uh, towards this world government. Uh, it failed, even though it was championed by President Wilson under the direction of the British, because actually not a lot of people know this, but the League of Nations was absolutely a British project. And in fact, the nervous system you will find once you go down the different rabbit holes very much is in the UK, in the city of London. Mm -hmm. But it failed because, or rather, it failed thanks to the American people and to the fact that the Senate wasn't as uh, compromised as it is today in the, early, in the early 20th century. And so they still um, respected the will of the people who refused to, um, to uh, participate in this League of Nations. And so the US didn't come signatory to the League of Nations because Americans were very wise to this push for the centralization of power which would effectively mean the erosion of their rights, which their forefathers had fought for so hard um, during the revolution. It's a great reminder that the U.S. system has checks and balances. The Senate has certain powers to ratify foreign treaties. What a difference from the governance architecture here in Davos. There's no democracy. There's no Senate. There's no elections at all. There's a president for life, Klaus Schwab, and his cronies who often buy their way in for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So what they do here doesn't need the ratification of any legislature. And they're a hundred years practiced at it more than Woodrow Wilson was. Yes. Yeah, so just coming back on the history, historical aspect, they failed with the first attempt with the League of Nations. And then fast forward a couple of decades later, you have the creation of the United States, United Nations, excuse me, after World War II. And as I mentioned at the outset of the interview, the 20th century large, largely was, um, was the theater of the setting up of the infrastructure for the globalists. And you know, you, you make me think of all the different UN agencies, yes. from the World Health Organization to the, their attempt to have an international criminal court to, uh, you know, the, there's international, there's on aviation, on postal, everything, human rights. So many different vehicles were set up in order to push policies and foist policies on nations. And the goal is to supersede national laws and regulations, effectively rendering um, the nation obsolete, which is the ultimate goal, right? They want a world where there is one government, a centralization of power, and all these entities, including the WEF, uh, the WEF, as I like to call it, is basically a um, giant press conference, because while there is some coordination, of course, that takes place here, essentially, this is the communications outlet of the globalists where they roll out and publicly reveal, I call it also a controlled reveal of the agenda to let us plebs know what it is they have in store for us. And what they do have in store for us is absolutely terrifying and very bleak. I mentioned the centralization of power 
which will come in the form of the digitization of every single aspect of our lives. And you look at the agenda for the week, and this is very much uh, the, the, main, the main topic, the main thing that they are talking about behind all the different topics, behind, behind the, the Trojan horse of climate change. They are going to use carbon footprints and, um, and different variables to justify the implementation of a social credit core system whereby we will just be hooked up to the grid and they can decide what we do, where we travel, how many times we can travel. I mean, for your viewers who followed your work, they are very wise to the fact that the so-called pandem so pandemic was very much a trial run to see how we would react to the restrictions, to digital IDs. Some people loved it. They embraced it. They became evangelists for it. Some people... They're thrilled by it. It's, it's bizarre to me. It's completely bizarre, but again, when you look at the 20th century and in conjunction with everything we were just talking about, you have the weaponization of mass psychological operations right. to brainwash the population, to dumb down the population, to lead them to this apathy and this subservience uh, where they don't even realize that they are willingly signing up for their own serfdom. Incredible. Some people love their own serfdom if the chains rest lightly on their ankles. They it use fear. Every, you know, you, you say it so well in your reporting, uh, Ezra, they use fear and they use these events, many of which are completely manufactured and, and um, they, they use these events to terrorize the population, to use these words like security, uh, safety, um, climate change, all these, these so-called crises. Um, so it's always the same, listen, it's always the same model. Problem, reaction, solution. Except that they are, they are behind to a large extent, if not exclusively behind the problems in the first place, behind the crises, and then they pretend to be the saviors the humanists, the philanthropists that are going to come and do good for humanity when they are doing the exact opposite. What, is, what are the counterweights to the World Economic Forum or the WEF, as you call it? What are the countries or institutions or even corporations? What is against this? Because when I look through the list of the board of trustees, I see some of the wealthiest people in the world, most powerful, most connected. I see political figures, figures from the world of finance and media. You mentioned media. All along this street we're walking, you see all the regime media. They're not here to, to ask questions. They're here to synchronize. Absolutely. And so... Who's against that? It, surely it can't just be grassroots, ragtag contrarians. I mean, on the media side, Rebel News is so teeny tiny, it's a joke compared to these others. And, and in the world of finance and, and government, are there any sizable counterweights to the World Economic Forum? Uh, just to bounce off on what you just said, you're absolutely right. There is a synchronization of all these different entities, of all these different vectors that convey the information and the agenda. But to answer your question, what the work that you're doing, Ezra, is absolutely vital because an informed population is the only way 
that we have a chance to fight against this and to reclaim these institutions, to dismantle the illegitimate ones and to push back. But it's up to us. But, but you and I and Rebel News and the, the ragtag critics, but we're not even 1% of 1% as big. Like the budgets they have, the budgets they have here, the, the connections, the influence, surely there's got to be some countervailing force. Maybe it's, I don't know, the World Economic Forum seems to love communist China. Maybe the, maybe communist China doesn't love them in return. I, I mean, I, I suppose Vladimir Putin in his own way is resistant to the globalist world order, but he's quite marginalized, I think, in, in international circles. I'm just trying to think who stands against this mighty array of plutocrats. Surely it's got to be more than than you and I. Uh, sure. It, it has to be we the people. That's that's what I was just saying a moment ago. It has to be we the people. And we don't have a choice because they are moving forward with their agenda. But at the same time, I would like to point out that even though we're we're not as big as they are, in terms of the media presence, in terms of the the coverage that they get, because they've just captured so many um, so many aspects of our society, and they have such a strong um, stranglehold on the information sector. But that being said, we are effective. We are more effective than we think because they are changing. For example, the nomenclature, the narrative. They are. They are. They are very much talking about the disinformation, extremism. They're labeling us all right, these terms. Right, right. They wouldn't be doing that if we weren't having some impact. They wouldn't, you don't shoot at a dead duck. The fact that they're trying to squelch small voices on the internet with, through censorship and de demonizing it as misinformation, I think that gives credence to your point. Yes, and the fact is, listen, we're here. We're here in Davos. Have you heard the term Great Reset? Oh, of course, yes. Well, I haven't heard it from them, but I'm, I'm aware. I mean, I know the book and I know the theory. But they haven't. They, oh, they've stopped using... They stopped using the Great Reset. They've stopped using Build Back Better. Right. These terms are too tainted. Right, right. caught on to them. So now they're calling, they're calling for cooperation in a fragmented world. Right. You know, for further centralization and coordination. Again, they use these terms that are positively connoted but actually mean the opposite so it's not cooperation that they're looking for it's coordination to further um to further uh, their power grab and just coordinate amongst them but no listen we we are at an unprecedented moment in time and we have a window of opportunity here i think they overplayed their hand with the so-called pandemic it's incredibly sad but everything that's coming to light with the jabs and the sudden deaths and the consequences of the catastrophic restrictions such as the lockdowns and all the destruction that ensued. And unfortunately, that will continue to come. You know, we're headed towards a financial collapse, an economic collapse that is going to be completely unpre unprecedented by design. And this is their final push. They're going to try to push the CBDCs. That's the central bank digital currencies. Yeah. That's the government answer to crypto. Yes. And one really important aspect that we have to note about the conference this year, if you look at it, what underpins everything, as I said, is the digitization of all aspects of our lives. Right. And there is this window of opportunity for them as well, because they've reached a point in the development of technology whereby the Internet of Things, 5G, 
again, the CBDCs, the entire science also of um, um, metrology of measuring things means that they will be able or that they are able to measure everything everywhere all the time. And effectively, we are going towards digital jails for the population. You know, I spoke to the head of COVID management here at the World Economic Forum, and she confirmed for me what I saw uh, reported, which is that if any one of the delegates tests positive in a PCR test, their card is Im immediately taken, yeah, deactivated. They cannot get, I said, does that even apply to Klaus Schwab? She said, yes, I'm not sure if I believe her, but but they're, they're testing that social credit digital ID system on their own people here. I wonder if they're actually enforcing it. She claimed they were. Well, let me ask you this. It's just so interesting to talk to you about these things. And I, I met you, I mean, I, I, through the internet, I started following you on Twitter and I, and I had seen other reports about you. I, I want to ask you just a biographical question because, I mean, you obviously speak for yourself. You have such an interesting mind. You're a historian. You, you study things very closely. You're based in Switzerland, which is a good place to do it. But our viewers must be thinking, Noor bin Laden, who is she? Do you want to talk for a minute about your family? Because I think people would find that interesting. Sure. I mean, we could have we could talk for so long about what we just discussed and covered. There's so much more to cover, but just in relation to to my background. So yes, my last name is Bin Laden. Uh, my father uh, is from the Bin Laden family. My mother is Swiss. I was born and raised here in Switzerland. My parents split up. I was an eight-month-old baby, and so because of their split, I was uh, kept here in Switzerland and uh, had. Uh, very limited to actually no contact with um, Saudi Arabia or that part of my family uh, through, you know, my, through my life. But um, the reason why I'm here and I'm speaking out about this is because of my love for America, actually, and my love for freedom, because despite my very strange or peculiar background, I've been going to the U.S. since the age of three multiple times a year. And so I grew up with this very deep understanding of what the founding fathers were able to achieve. You know, that, that juxtaposition of comparing societies like America compared to, at the time, a society like Saudi Arabia or different parts of the world where uh, the political or cultural uh, landscape is very different made me acutely aware of what a blessing it is to live in a free society. Well, that's an amazing answer. And by the way, I, w I was just curious because people would say, Ezra, who is Noor bin Laden? Can I ask you a question about Saudi Arabia? Because Saudi Arabia has a presence here at Davos, and so does the United Arab Emirates. Do you see any prospect for the little green shoots of freedom to grow in the desert sands? Do you think it's possible for countries that have been unfree to become free. I know the pendulum has swung, swung away from freedom, but do you hold out any hope? Uh, for example, Trump's Abraham Accords. What do you think of those? Do you think that there's, do you think that people in the Arab world long for freedom too? You know, my focus is very much the fight against the globalists because that really takes precedence over everything. And the point that I was making answering your previous question is that for me, the United States very much in terms of what the founding fathers were able to establish with, you know, you mentioned checks 
the checks of power balance it. I know what you mean, the checks and balances. Of the, I mean, the American system is really wonderful. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights, how they managed to enshrine the freedoms of their citizens and very much the specific part where they're God-given rights. They're not granted by any government. And so for me, the United States very much is the benchmark when you look at all the different uh, societal projects um, in terms of, uh, of human rights. Well, they, they really are, as others have said, the shining city on the hill. Exactly. Do you, do you have hope for America? Because, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a big part of Americans that are tired of being free, that want to embrace globalism, that love the lockdowns. There's part of Americans that don't love America as much as you love America. I think they've been lulled, you know, it's not just the case for America, I think it's the case for all of the Western world. We've been lulled into this acceptance. And, you know, you look at the educational system in America and I find it so heartbreaking that kids, like children in school, aren't being taught about what the founding fathers stood for. But that's by design, right? Because they don't want people to be aware of their own sovereignty and their own rights. And so what I'm focusing on is trying to let people know to bring back, to bring back this understanding of what it means to be an American because there's been so much brainwashing done to, to teach people and especially Americans to hate their own country when in fact America is the only country that stands in the way of the globalists and their plan for a new world, new world order or one world government. And so that's why it's so critical that America gets back, gets back on her feet. Because if America is strong, America can stand in the way of this project. And so we, the rest of the world, thus have a chance as well. Well, that's incredible. What a wonderful call to arms. Last question. I follow you on Twitter, and we'll put your Twitter handle on the webpage for people to follow, too. Are you, is there a place where people can get more content from you? Uh, are you affiliated with any organization? Have you, have you thought about writing a book? Maybe you have already. Um, what can people do if they want to learn more about you and your ideas? Yeah, I understand. The, the background, especially it's the first time. No, it's great. I'm, 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 well, you're very kind. Maybe for your audience uh, finding out. Well, about want, well, not just about you biographically, but your ideas. They're so spot on. And the fact that you understand America, maybe even better than some Americans, and you understand the role America has historically played for freedom. It's I, I'm touched by it, and I'm not even American myself. I'm Canadian. Because anybody who loves freedom and who understands that cannot not love the United States of America. I feel the same way. I mean, I mean, I love Canada. It's my home. I'm sure you love Switzerland as your home. But America really is, thank God for it, they, they are the shining exemplar. So like, what, what do you read? Is there a, are there websites you go to? Are there, are there public intellectuals you follow? Who, who do you set your compass by? So, you know, there are two levels. There's the micro level with regards to what happens on the political landscape in the U.S. So obviously my go-to is Steve Bannon. Oh yeah, he's, yeah, he has a lot of yeah. America first. He's really yeah. deep into that. Yep. Yeah, Steve yeah. Bannon. 100% like America first, uh, mm -hmm. America first people. Obviously, uh, Darren J. Beatty from Revolver. Oh, he's very, he's a, t he, he fights hard. He's 
one of my absolute favorites. He's a real investigative journalist. Yes, a real investigative journalist. And uh, I've, uh, I've tried my best also to write about what's happened with uh, the fake insurrection. Where do you write? Do you, do you write with Revolver as well? I've written a few times for Revolver. And then for your viewers, most of the work that I do can be found on my website, which is norbinladen.com. So you'll have also um, my writings uh, that I've self-published, those on Revolver. I had done a few for The Spectator at the beginning. So I tried to put everything uh, there. And uh, yeah, my Twitter is also the best, uh, the best spot. Well, I have enjoyed our walk and talk through Davos very much. And, well, of course, please do. Oh, please do, yeah. Uh, for those who are very passionate about history, and especially the history of globalism, I cannot uh, understate the tremendous work of my friend Richard Poe. Richard Poe, okay. Yeah, who publishes at Lou Rockwell. Okay. A great person to follow. He's at Real Richard Poe on Twitter as well. Great. I'm unfamiliar with his work, but I'll check him out for sure. And, and you do have to know your history because otherwise you'll be caught by surprise. Exactly. Noor, I have enjoyed this very much. It's been a real pleasure to meet you. And I, I didn't expect to meet you here. I didn't expect to meet allies here, but I've met so many. I've met people. For example, there was a young journalist from Japan named Masako who said she saw our Rebel News coverage in May and was inspired to do the same. And so now she's here as a, as a citizen journalist. I saw a couple of others. So, and, I, and Savannah Hernandez, who we were here with last time. I feel like there is a little counter-WEF community, and you're obviously part of it. I hope we have a chance to meet again. I, I really don't get to Switzerland often, but I tell you, if I'm going to Geneva, I'm going to look you up and we'll say hello. You have to, you have to look me up and we'll have to do this. This was completely impromptu. But the thing that I wanted to say for me, you know, doing my work now for about two years, quite as a recluse, it's so heartwarming that you guys made the trip and to meet in person because, you know, it can feel quite lonely when you're doing this work behind your Right, I bet. On your own. So it's been very reinvigorating to just be together in person. So thank you so much. Well, I feel the same way. And thank you. And great to meet you, my friend. Great to meet you too. Right on. There you have it, Noor Bin Laden. Well, we're going to check out those. I, I know some of the sites she's referring to, but we'll certainly keep an eye on things. And hopefully we'll be able to talk to her from time to time, if not in person, at least by Zoom or Skype as the news breaks. Right on. There you have it. Ezra Levant for Rebel News. You can see all our reports at wefreports.com. Actually, from Canada myself. Can I ask you? Uh, so, are you you handing this out on behalf of the Financial Times or by on behalf of Canada or who's Financial Times? Oh yeah. So, but this is just an Invest in Canada promotion. By Invest in Canada. So they hired you to be here on the street. Do you work for Financial Times all the time, or is it just? No, no, no. I'm just a promoter. So I, I saw this at one of the airports in uh, Alterheim, if I'm saying that right. And um, where, so where else is this being promoted? I don't know, actually. Are you part of a team? Yes, I am. How many folks are, are working on this? Here on the VEF, only four people. Four, so four people at the VEF itself. Um, and uh, what are the other things you're doing to promote it? That's Just handing it out on the street? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much. You know, I've actually already read it because uh, uh, several people have given it to me. So I'll give it back to you. Nice to meet you. Nice Okay, see you later. Bye-bye. That's a, 
uh, a nice like, young lady handing out um, a Financial Times special sponsored edition. That's not actually the Financial Times newspaper. That's a paid infomercial to invest in Canada. So Canadian taxpayers, you heard her, are paying to have four people wandering around handing out an Invest in Canada glossy brochure that was paid for once. You had to pay the Financial Times to make this glossy PR document and then paid for again to have nice young ladies like her hand them out. When I was at the private jet airport in Altenheim, if I'm saying that correctly, I saw a stack of them there. Remember when I saw the free food and welcome gifts? So there must be thousands of those that they're handing out. Um, I'm not sure if handing out an infomercial like that on the streets of Davos is going to generate investment in Canada um, on its own. And I don't know if it's going to generate investment in Canada when the prime minister himself says there is no business case, for example, for LNG, liquefied natural gas. You know, two, not one, but two national leaders have come to Canada begging Justin Trudeau to let them buy Canadian oil and gas. It's funny, we're standing right outside Project Ukraine is You. And we were, we were coming in and I just saw that young lady handing out the Financial Times. Do you know what the main weapon Russia is using to attack Ukraine is? It's not a tank. It's not a drone. It's the oil weapon. It's the natural gas weapon. The reason that Russia is so economically strong with foreign currency reserves is because they're one of the world's largest producers of oil and gas. They're really tied with Saudi Arabia and the United States producing about 10 million barrels of oil a day, but their real stranglehold on Europe, especially Germany, is in natural gas. You can't actually put sanctions on Russia if you're Europe because that would be tantamount to putting sanctions on yourself. Is Germany simply going to stop using a third of its energy? So. Both the new Chancellor of Germany and the new Prime Minister of Japan, they both came to Canada and said, please, liberate us from this conflict energy. Liberate us from the conflict natural gas from the Russian company Gazprom. Please let us buy Canadian ethical oil and gas. And in the case of both of those countries, they really wanted the natural gas. And Justin Trudeau said... No, both times. In fact, he didn't even have the courage to say no like a normal person would. He said, oh, well, we're going to have the green energy revolution and hydrogen and what? These people need natural gas to burn in their power plants now. They need natural gas so you can cook on a stove, so you can have a furnace. And he gave this weird, goofy answer about hydrogen or ammonia or whatever, take a listen. We know that being a reliable supplier of energy is important, and we're going to continue to look for ways to be that reliable supplier of energy. But even as we do talk about things like LNG and other traditional sources of energy, we know the world is moving aggressively and meaningfully towards decarbonizing towards diversifying, towards more renewables. And that's where uh, the agreements that we've uh, already seen to develop between Japanese and Canadian companies on hydrogen, on ammonia, on uh, various new technologies are really exciting. Yeah, so my point is you've got four nice young ladies earning a few thousand bucks over the course of Davos, handing out these glossy brochures. They're everywhere. Like I say, I saw them at the private jet place. 
But that's not going to convince someone to invest millions, let alone billions of dollars in a country when the stupid prime minister says there's no business case to sell oil and gas. No business case? Well, by the way, the Germans since signed a deal with Qatar. And no business case? Well, tell that's a Gazprom that's making hundreds of billions of dollars selling their conflict energy. Canada has one of the stupidest prime ministers in the world. And that's a big contest. For Rebel News, I'm Ezra Levan on the streets of Davos. To find all of our reports at the World Economic Forum gathered here, go to wefreports.com. Well, what do you think of Noor bin Laden? I think she's very interesting. I want to do a little more due diligence, look at some of the things she looks at. I want to understand her more. But wow, was I impressed. Very interesting. In fact, I got to say, if I had my way, based on what I know now, I would like her to become an occasional contributor to Rebel News. I mean, she's in a faraway place, Geneva, Switzerland, but that's an interesting town, especially if you care about freedom and globalism and fighting for nation states as we do here at Rebel News. I like Noor bin Laden. The name startles you when you hear it, but when you get to know the woman, you are deeply impressed. At least I certainly was. That's our show for today. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Davos, Switzerland, where the rebels are on patrol to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. In a way, we lost a lot of innocence at that time. But I think there was a serious questioning of what kind of values was this society promulgating, and we didn't like it. One thing that I've gotten off on lately is that basically, you know, I study fruit flies, and I suddenly realized that basically we're all fruit flies. If you're Canadian, then you definitely know exactly who David Suzuki is. He was crammed down your throat since early childhood thanks to the CBC and his show The Nature of Things. And he's been painted as some sort of expert on climate change when he is, by training, a fruit fly geneticist who doesn't seem to like humanity all that much. You see, David Suzuki seems to think the world is overpopulated by people like you and me, but definitely not by people like him. You see, he has five kids and at least four houses, including... One on the beach while he warns us about the rising oceans caused by your comfortable SUV and all of your kids. And now David Suzuki has joined the war on gas stoves. If you weren't paying attention, yes, unbelievably, there's a war on natural gas stoves with critics calling it a source of indoor pollution linked to childhood asthma. It's crazy. Dr. Christy Ross is a pediatric pulmonologist. She says cooking with gas can release chemicals that irritate a child's airways, just like secondhand smoke or air pollution. A bureaucrat with the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission told Bloomberg he believes gas stoves are a hidden hazard and suggested the agency should ban them. And the agency is relying on a December 2022 study in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health which, according to the bureaucrat, found that indoor gas stove usage is associated with an increased risk of asthma among children. There's a claim here that 13% of childhood asthma is attributed to gas stove usage. But according to the Washington Examiner, a news agency that dug down on this, the lead author of the study does not assume or estimate a causal relationship between childhood asthma and gas stoves. So the whole thing is just complete bunk, despite being reported as gospel truth in CNN, Yahoo, Bloomberg, etc., etc., etc. 
But these people really don't need proof anyway. They've got the solution. They're just looking for the problem. CBC has been talking about banning gas stoves since at least 2019 and probably sooner. And the David Suzuki Foundation has just come out against natural gas stoves in a press release today. Although I'm probably certain that David Suzuki has natural gas in at least one of his four houses. And according to the Washington Free Beacon... The David Suzuki Foundation might actually be inadvertent useful idiots for the CCP. As they point out, the Green Energy Group, the Rocky Mountain Institute, that's the one behind the study, cited in the Consumer Product Safety Commissioner's attempts to ban gas stoves, well, they partnered with the Chinese government to implement a, quote, economy-wide transformation away from oil and gas. So... The Chinese partnered with environmentalist groups in the U.S. to attack our comfortable first world lifestyle, but also the wealth creating industry behind it all. And so since that inconvenient fact has come to light, the environmentalists are quietly trying to gaslight you, saying, oh, there's no war on natural gas. That's just a conservative conspiracy theory, you know, except for New York State Governor Hochul backing a ban on gas furnaces and stoves in new buildings. And we know that one of the leading causes of illnesses and death in the developing world, it's not natural gas, it's lack of it. It's indoor fires and burning dung for heating and cooking. What those people in the developing world wouldn't do for a clean burning natural gas stove. The developing world must think that the Western world is absolutely cuckoo. For Rebel News, I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed.